For the last month, we've been focusing on gratitude, and next week starts the big path towards Christmas, and we love Christmas around here. I think we're going to not even do Christmas morning. It's Christmas is on Sunday. We're not going, no, Christmas Eve is on Sunday, so we're not going to do Sunday morning. We're just going to do Christmas Eve. That's how much we like Christmas around here, because I'm just going to be brutally honest. Uh, I'm thankful for you guys, and I love you. We've been here 20 years, but I know you're not doing two services in the same day, so... If we're going to pick one, let's do Christmas Eve uh, for, uh, for, for December 24th. So that all starts next week. But we've been working on gratitude, been focusing on relationships through summer and into the fall because the whole purpose of life, where we find our meaning, is to love God and to love others, use the gifts we've been uniquely given to serve those around us. We always want to focus on our rights, which leads to misery because it relies on other people to do their parts. And if you've ever met somebody, that's risky. It's best to focus on what we can do our responsibilities to the rest of the world and to trust God is putting it all together. Out in the hallway, there's been a grateful sign, what I'm grateful for. And several people said they're thankful and grateful for their families. They're thankful for, for the Lord. They're thankful for this church. Uh, one person put thankful for their mother-in-law. So I didn't know we were doing jokes on that board. I thought we were trying to be genuinely grateful. It changes our whole perspective of life. There's always challenges going on, but we want to focus on gratitude. And uh, as a church, I've been here 20 years. I'm 55 years old, so you start doing the math. That's a long time, even for an old guy like me. We uh, went up to Flagstaff to enjoy the, uh, the, our annual Thanksgiving tradition. I have a New York family, and my wife, who's very Southern, we went to my New York family's uh, Thanksgiving one time, and the food was not worthy, so we've never been back. And that's uh, okay. It's a big family. They don't miss us. And uh, so we take friends with us and go do the Polar Express with our kids every year. It is just delightful. We get to see bears at some point right outside our car, so that's always fun. And on the way back, I was concerned about Phoenix traffic. And for the first time in a decade and a half, Phoenix traffic was great. I don't think a single person flipped me off. So, wow, it was just really an exciting trip through Phoenix, and uh, I was grateful for that. We, on occasion, try to bring in some outside voices, a lot of voices in the world, and so we try to import uh, some outside voices. Sometimes we use video, and sometimes it's live, and usually it's really great. Uh, several years ago, only a few of us left in Midtown. Uh, James, maybe you remember this, but uh, the guy doing the sermon at one point, as, as I remember the story going, I think, I think he was confessing to shooting a guy. So, uh, you know, it's a bit of a risk. This can go right off the rails, but Glenn has been in ministry for 40 years. I'm very excited with him ending with how many uh, traditional church people do we have this morning that have ever done communion um, with uh, the bread and the cup being served on a tray? Who's ever experienced that? Okay, good. That's good. About half. That's more than half our crowd. That is really exciting. Tucson can be a little underchurched, so that is very exciting to me, so we don't have to explain it so much. We uh, tend to do a whole different style communion. And uh, Glenn's going to get us there. He's been in ministry for 40 years. He and Lynn Ann, they're in Bible studies. Some of you have met them. And uh, Glenn's been on the East Coast. He started in Ohio. We love almost everybody from Ohio, except for the serial killers. And uh, then they spent a lot of years in ministry in California, but we won't hold that against him. And they've recently retired here. And uh, today, Glenn is bringing our finale of the Gratitude series. So welcome, Glenn. Hey, thank you to Pastor Ted. Appreciate it. Just want you to know that at that time in California, we're basically serving as missionaries to California. 
you know, that puts everything in perspective. Thank you so much. It's a good to be with you today to share the word of the Lord with you. I want to pray very quickly, then we'll get right to it. Father, would you speak to us today from your marvelous word? We trust you for this. We're praying this in Jesus' great name. And all God's people said right out, right out loud, Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, I want you to think about a word today, and that word is disposition. As a matter of fact, I want you to think about this in such a way. I want you to reinforce this. I want you to turn to somebody around you, before you, behind you, and say to them, simply that word, disposition. Do it right now. Go ahead. You're going to find this an interactive experience today. Disposition. You got that? Okay. Now, we're going to get to be more of that, so you have more, you have greater chances later. That word is typically defined as a person's inherent qualities of mind and character. However, I would take umbrage at one word in that definition, and that is inherent. Inherent makes it sound like you're just born that way. That's just the way it is. And there are a lot of things about this that are we're just born that way, right? You know, your eye color, even things like uh, certain elements of your personality, not character. That's a separate thing. Personality, though, are are encoded uh, from birth. But much of what we are can be amplified by what we bring into our lives and minimized by what we take out of our lives. What we're thinking about today is our basic disposition toward life itself. And here's my uh, thought out in logical order, okay? That is that our disposition toward life is shaped by our disposition toward God. Our disposition toward God is shaped by our understanding of who God is and what he's done. If we believe that God is indifferent to us or that he does not exist or that he is a hard taskmaster, we will likely have a hard attitude toward life. We'll be hard on ourselves and we'll be hard on other people. We will believe that indifference or even hostility to other people is uh, just the way life is and it's what you need to do to get ahead, whatever that might be. If, on the other hand, we believe that God is full of grace, that he loves us, that he desires the best for us, then we will likely also be full of grace toward other people. And we will desire the best for others as well. And that becomes a renewed disposition toward life and toward people. What's your disposition? I say that if we live a life that truly grasps the nature of the grace of God that gets that grace not just in our heart, minds but in our hearts you might even say in our bones so that it permeates us so that we truly understand that God is a God of overflowing love and grace you will begin to see that it not only transforms you but that you are called to live a, jo a joyful life of giving grace to other people it will come naturally to you your disposition will be that of gratitude toward God and toward other people. You will become a fountain of grace and forgiveness and gentleness to the people around you, so much so that people will on occasion ask, what's with you in a good way? But here's the rub. If that's not who you are, if that doesn't really describe who you are, and yet you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, folks, it's time to go back to the well. Time to discover again who God is and the nature of his love toward you. Now, um, I did my, my doctoral thesis on the Puritans. See how I slipped in that I have a doctorate? I just made it seem natural. Did my doctoral research on the Puritans, and uh, one of the things I learned about them is 
they discovered how to, how to hate the sin in their own lives without hating themselves. That's a tricky thing to do. It's an important skill. And we're going to touch on that a little bit later, though. How'd they learn to do that? They learned it from Scripture itself. They learned to have a disposition of gratitude from the teachings of Scripture. So what we're going to do today is a, is a brief foray, exploration, journey that will teach us about the grace of God, that will teach us about God's love in Jesus, and to teach us about gratitude, the disposition of gratitude. Well, you know, I told you I'd give another chance later. There's that word disposition earlier. Now turn and say to somebody, gratitude. Gratitude. Let's get a better grade on this one. Gratitude. Gratitude. A little, little louder murmur, please. Gratitude. Oh, you're learning. Okay. Several years ago, I was sitting in a Greek restaurant having lunch. I know it's an amazing thought that somebody as svelte as me ever has lunch, right? But I was having lunch in this Greek restaurant, and I, and there, I noticed a sign that was framed by the cash register, and it was in Greek. Now, listen, I, I studied Koine Greek. That's common Greek of the first century. The New Testament's written in. I studied that in seminary, but that does not mean I am fluent in the language. Not only that, Greek has changed from 2,000 years ago to the present. But there was one word that I recognized right away. And I'm, I'm convinced that a number of you will recognize it too once I put it in context. And that word, let's put it up on the screen. Yeah, there it is. And I'm going to tell you how to pronounce this. You're, you're, going to, you're getting free Greek lessons today. No extra charge, okay? It's eucharisteo. Say it with me. Eucharisteo. More enthusiasm. Eucharisteo. It's a great word. And I saw that in there. And that word is found in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 24. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, there's the word, Eucharistio. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You probably recognize those words, don't you? Words often used when we're observing the Lord's Supper. Passage goes on, verses 25 and 26. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 11 is really quite interesting because on the one hand, he is giving a, um, a history lesson, saying this is what Jesus did with his disciples. On the other hand, he's saying, now I want you to take what Jesus did and I want you to reproduce it there in your local church there in Corinth. I want you to do the very same things. And these are the things you're to do. First thing you do is you give thanks. You give thanks to Jesus for what he did for us on the cross. And you give thanks for our salvation. You give thanks for the fact that we have a God who forgives sin. You give thanks for the resurrection of Jesus for the, and the hope of eternal life that is ours as well. You start by giving thanks. And then you use bread to indicate Jesus' body. You use the wine, the cup, to indicate Jesus' blood. You announce how the supper then shows us the new covenant in Jesus. And you keep doing it until when? Till Jesus comes back. That hasn't happened yet, so we're still doing it. 
But the starting point is the giving of thanks. For the believer, Thanksgiving is not a holiday in November. It is a a way of life. Gratitude is baked into the cake of our faith. It's just who we are as believers. In so many ways, this whole business of living the Christian life is simply living out a life of gratitude for the greatness and the grace and the love of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the things you've done. Thank you. Your life becomes pervaded with grace and gratitude. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you here will confess to have uh, ever seen The Simpsons on TV? Anybody ever seen The Simpsons? Okay, there's there's some folks that are too holy to admit it. But uh, uh, the the Simpsons, one time on The Simpsons, Bart, you know Bart, was cajoled into offering the prayer before the meal. I had the exact, I had the transcript of what he said. Dear God, we paid for all this stuff for thanks for nothing. So we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. That is not the disposition of gratitude. I mean... Where do we get the ability to work and earn? Everything comes from God if you take it back to its source. No such thing as a self-made person. Everything comes from God. As a matter of fact, it reminds me of a joke. Do we have time for a joke? I'm going to ask Pastor Ted, do we have time for a joke? He says, I'm funny all the time. I don't need to tell jokes. Got it. Okay. Um, But uh, the story goes that uh, scientists got very cocky. They realized they could now create life in a laboratory. And they say, you know what, we could probably make better life than God ever made. So let's challenge God to a contest. And they say, God? And he goes, yes. He says, we're going to have a life-making contest. You ready for this? We think we can make a life that's even better than the life you made. And you go, okay, guys, let's go at it. Let's throw this thing down. God was in the mood. And they said, okay. We, yeah, God says, I'll give you guys 24 hours. He goes, great, 24 hours. That's all we need, God. And then one scientist turned to his assistant and said, go outside. First thing, go outside and get some dirt. And God said, whoa, 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 right there. Go get your own dirt, okay? Oh, come on, that was better than that. <laughs> you probably know, if you know about the Lord's Supper, you probably know that Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth was based on what Jesus did with his apostles as recorded in the four Gospels. And you probably also know that this event that we historically refer to as the Last Supper was not a meal that Jesus had invented whole cloth. Instead, they were observing the Passover meal, what uh, modern Jewish folks today call a Seder meal. They, they were celebrating what God had done 1,400 years before. And in that time, God sent Moses in the time of Israel's captivity in Egypt to win the freedom of the people. And he went before Pharaoh. He went demanding their freedom. And Pharaoh's response was, no way, buddy. I'm just going to make life more miserable for the people of Israel. Uh, And God responded to this by sending them ten plagues. Now, I'm old enough to remember Larry Norman. I wonder if anyone else in the room knows the name Larry Norman. Might be nobody at all, okay? Okay, I I got it. Early Christian, uh, you know, what they call contemporary gospel. He was kind of ahead of his time. And uh, in the words of Larry Norman, God sent uh, Moses, and God bugged Pharaoh and bugged him and bugged him, and sometimes he even used real bugs. Yes, you know the line, okay. And uh, so we're going to go through the ten plagues, okay? Ten plagues. 
Now, I hope you have some time. This could take a couple of hours. Are we good? No, we're, I tell you what, we'll just enumerate them, all right? But by enumerate, that means we actually put a number on them. So I'll say the name of the plague, and you say one. And look, this, the second one, and you go two. And I have to explain it that way. If I just did the first one, some smart aleck here might just say one each time. One, one. Where's Mike Welliver? I was talking about that. I'm talking about him. That's something he would do, okay? So here we go. The... The water of the Nile turned a putrid blood red. One. Then uh, there were frogs. Two. Then lice. Three. Then flies. Four. Then pestilence. Five. Then boils. Six. Then hail. Seven. Then locusts. Eight. Then darkness. Nine. Stop right there. By each and every one of these. God was rebuking the various gods of Egypt, saying, you think you're in charge of the Nile? No, I'm in charge of the Nile. You think you're in charge of the livestock? No, I'm in charge of the livestock. Right on through. But that was only nine. And we stopped there because the last plague was a terrible plague. It was a terrible plague. It involved the death of all the firstborn sons and all the land of Egypt. That's terrible. Was God justified in doing something crazy like that? I want to remember that the Hebrews had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And remember what they told the people of Israel? Hey, when you have a baby boy, you throw him in the Nile. If there were there was a case of the law of sowing and reaping, this is it. But go deeper, if you know the story, recall it wasn't just over all the Egyptian homes in Egypt that the angel of death came it was over all the homes in Egypt including the homes of the Israelite slaves everybody there was under a death sentence but God gave the Israelites and anyone else who listened a way to escape the sentence of death through the slaughter of the Passover lamb and then you would take the blood of that lamb and you would smear it on the, on the door frames, the, the side posts of the door of your home. That was your way of saying, we believe in the words of the Lord and we put our faith in this lamb that takes our place. And they were spared. They weren't spared because of the good deeds they were, had done. They weren't spared because they were Israelites. They weren't spared because they were slaves. They were spared just because they put their faith in the word of God and they placed their faith in the lamb who had taken their place. And today it's still the same. When you put your trust in God, in his word, when you put your trust in Jesus, the lamb of God, you are spared the consequences of your sin. You're spared those consequences, not based on the greatness of your deeds, not based because you are rich or because you're poor, not because of your race or your ethnicity, but simply on the basis of the Lamb who takes your place. I wonder if you remember John 1.29. John the Baptist sees Jesus one day and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for people at that time, that man, that lit up all the lights. They knew what that meant. And now with us, with the benefit of Scripture, we know what it means too. And all we can say to it is to say, this is glorious. To see how the whole Word of God comes together and tells us one coherent story of God's love and grace and redemption. 
and how this, it has always been that way. It is not, not 66 separate books going in 66 directions, but 66 books all in the same route. Hence, Route 66. Got it? Okay. Remember how I said how our disposition toward life is largely shaped by our disposition toward God? I want you to know that, that I wasn't just saying, well, you know, this is my observation. But you can actually find this rooted in Scripture. And you find it in an unexpected place. It's, uh, it's in a place that, uh, it's, in John, it's in Luke 15. Uh, th- this idea that, that you're, the way that you're, you behave toward other people is founded in, in how, you, how you see God. It's in the story of the prodigal son. Now, the story of the prodigal son is actually stories about two sons. The one son, the prodigal, prodigal means somebody who spends like there's nobody, no tomorrow. The one son, he, he demands his inheritance early. A terrible insult in that culture in that time. Goes off, spends his inheritance, blows all the money, and then says, I am destitute. I'm going to go back home and beg my father to just let me be a hired hand. He goes home and his father doesn't just let him be his hired hand. He's thrilled that his son is home. That's all that he can see. His son is home. The one, that, the one who insulted him so deeply. All he can see is the son is home. But there's another brother in the story. We're told in the story that the, that the prodigal was the younger brother. But there was an older brother. And this older brother had stayed right there. And uh, when they're throwing a party to welcome home his brother, he is so unhappy, he doesn't even want to come inside the house. What does he say to his father? This is Luke 15, 29. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. That's how he viewed God. Because the father in the story is clearly standing for God. God he saw as a slave driver that you have to work very hard to make happy. And that's why he, he hated his little brother too because he was hard toward his father and he's hard toward his brother and he's hard on himself. He's hard all around. Let me tell you something about this interesting about the story of the prodigal son. It's, it's, everybody's in the story somewhere. Either the prodigal or the older brother. Most of us have been prodigals. A handful of us, though, our sin of choice was religious pride. And that made us older brothers. But we're all in the story one place or the other. Let me tell you something. An effective church is a church that, where this is true. Where everybody, every, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Amen? That's the nature of the grace of God. Grace, we talk about amazing grace. Grace is amazing in so many dimensions, I couldn't possibly enumerate them all. We've been there 10,000 years. We would have time to enumerate all the great things about grace. Let me tell you why it's great in the realm of our self-being. You might say in our mental health. We'll just call it our well-being. Grace means that I know I have nothing over anyone else. I've known a lot of people over a lot of years who've done a lot of bad things. 
I've had churches where some of our board members have done serious prison time, and they did some bad things. Never for one second did I think, oh, I'm so much better than they are. No, no. I didn't even do the dirt for the grace of God. No, because I can, I just, I'm just a criminal that they can catch, right? You know, we're just spiritually, we're just criminals that just haven't been caught. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and all means all. No exceptions to the rule. I'm no exception. I have no basis for pride. I'm not better than anyone else, and that keeps me humble. Keeps me where I need to be. Don't get proud. But grace also means this. God saw fit to extend his love toward me for whatever mysterious reason, and it truly to times is mysterious to me. I am loved by him. Jesus, the Lamb of God, laid down his life for me. Therefore, I have no grounds for despising myself. If I do, I'm saying I'm smarter than God at evaluating me. And I am not. I'm not better than anyone else, but somehow, amazingly, I am not trash. And the way that I look at it, I look around, we're all sinners, and we're all loved in that awesome, that's amazing grace. By the way, that's something that my study of the Puritans taught me. These guys really understood this. They really understood this thoroughly. Don't let anybody tell you the Puritans were a bunch of self-righteous people. They hated self-righteousness because they knew how terrible it was. But if I, I don't have pride left, I don't have self-loathing left, what am I left with? There's one thing, one beautiful thing I'm left with, and what I'm left with is gratitude. Pure, beautiful, fantastic gratitude for the grace of God. Gratitude not just for material benefits like a roof over my head or something to eat, but for eternal, everlasting benefits like peace and hope, the promise of eternal life. I will never be forsaken. I will never be left. He is always with me. His salvation will reach me no matter where I am, no matter what I do. He is with me always. I really wanted to communicate with you today what does that look like in real life. And uh, I read a story. A woman named Linda Elliott tells a story about something she experienced one Christmas season in Little Rock, Arkansas. It was Black Friday. We, we just had that, right? It's one of the great American holidays. It should just be on the calendar. Black Friday, you know, let's just like Super Bowl, you know, it's the big game Sunday, the unofficial holidays. She writes, out of the corner of my eye, I notice an elderly man on the other side of the window making his way carefully down the sidewalk. He's carrying a black umbrella in his left hand, sheltering himself in the rain, and balancing several brooms on his right shoulder. Beneath a thin gray coat, he was dressed in a plaid flannel shirt and brown pants. A striped ski cap protected his head, and thick glasses covered his eyes like a shield. As I watched, he smiled and stepped politely aside to allow a couple rushing by. Who's that? I asked Carolyn, who she was having breakfast with. Oh, she says, that's Melvin. 
He's been walking these streets for years and years. I heard he put several of his children through college selling those brooms. He's almost blind and in his 70s, but he keeps on keeping on. I don't know how he does. Everybody just, everybody buys brooms from him. Just then Melvin ducked through the doorway into the little restaurant. Winning customers smiled and cleared the way for him. A few shook his hand. Others patted his shoulder as he moved quietly from table to table, smiling and asking, do you need a broom today? Several patrons bought brooms from him and rose to stack their new brooms near the doorway. And she said, the author goes to him and says, Melvin, I'm a writer and I wonder if you'd let me interview you. I have a hunch your life is very special. Melvin paused and thought for a moment, and then he smiled and said, Well, I've been asked to do a lot of interviews, and I've always said no. But this time, I'm going to say yes. We set a time to meet at the cafe the the very next Friday morning for breakfast. Exactly a week later, Melvin and I met. Melvin shook my hand at the front door and says, Isn't it a blessing to get a good hot breakfast on a cold morning? Melvin took a sip of hot coffee and then sat straight and tall in his chair. Now, there's one thing, he says, I I need to make clear about this interview. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. My mother died when I was born. I never knew my daddy. I was raised by my grandmother. She was a wonderful person. I've been married to the same lady for 45 years. Jesus has always been very good to me. I owe everything I am and have to him. I'm a thankful man. When the waitress brought our overloaded plates, I asked Melvin about his eyesight. Well, I was born this way. I can see a little bit, but my wife, Dorothy, she was born totally blind. People didn't think we could make it, but um, we raised five children. Lord's always given us work. Before she retired, she taught music to handicapped children. Me, I'm 72 years old, and I'm still working. I can't see much, but uh, I don't feel handicapped because God helps me do whatever I need to do. Enthusiastic and eager to talk, he wrapped his hands around his cup of coffee. I've been happy in life because I made up my mind when I was a very young man that I wanted to help people. Life's not about what somebody will do for you. It's about what you can do for somebody else. I love God and I love people. So how how do you help people? He said up proudly, well, every morning, lest it's under 30, lest it's really raining hard or something, I wait on the corner for my bus, and I pray God will send me somebody that day that needs my help. Then I watch to see whom he sends across my path. Even a smile or a kind word helps people in this rough old world. I feel I'm successful in life because God always sends people I can help. As he buttered a biscuit and covered it with jelly, I began to feel as if that coffee shop had turned into holy ground this man had it all figured out he was calm and secure I could feel the peace of the Holy Spirit coming from within him even in the midst of the busy coffee shop he wasn't fretful or anxious like the rest of us well like me he navigated the crowds and the weather every day without complaint tell tell me about your children well Dorothy and I put two of them through college uh, two of them died. One is not as close to the Lord as he ought to be. But prayer, that'll make the difference. Jesus suffered for us. Why shouldn't I suffer over my child? Then he added confidently, I believe my child will return to the Lord. How would you like your children to remember you? A tear slid down behind those thick glasses. 
I want my children to remember I was always there for them when they needed me. That I loved Jesus. I never let him go hungry. I wanted to believe I was a good man. Gesture toward his brooms. I don't worry, I'm not afraid of anything. I have peace of mind. I'm grateful for whatever God does. If I sell one broom, I'm thankful. If I sell ten brooms, I'm thankful. God has shown me that my family will always have everything we need. It's not about money. It's about God providing. Always tell them, whatever you want is what I want. As Melvin and I hugged and parted ways that December morning, I knew my holiday would be more focused and more filled with gratitude because of him. Once again, God had sent Melvin somebody to help. A few weeks later, I caught a glimpse of my divine messenger, brooms over his shoulder, off on another adventure. I had no doubt he was counting his blessings and looking for the next person God was sending his way. I should add one post note to the story that's not in her record. June 18, 2017, at age 84, Melvin Pickens went home to be with the Lord. Now that's a man with a true and deep disposition of gratitude. Father, I thank you for witnesses like Melvin who point us to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, I thank you for people in our lives that point us toward Jesus. Now, Lord, as we, as we commence to observe the Lord's Supper, we're asking you to be present in a very special way that you would meet us here. Pray this in Jesus. Amen. We're going to do the Lord's Supper today. Pastor Ted asked me, and I said, can I do it a little differently? says as long as you do all the work which I understand I was a pastor too for 40 years as he keeps saying and the way that we're going to do it is I'm going to invite you to rise from where you are and come down here to the front we have bread and we have the cup here now I've got a couple of gentlemen who are lined up at a time if you are physically if it would be difficult for you to come down here they've got these trays on the side that are just for you so, uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to come down, just have another word, and then we're just going to observe the Lord's Supper together. Okay? Jesus said, when you come together, do what I did. Give thanks. Take note of the bread and of the cup. The bread signifying his own body. The cup signifying his blood. Do it, drink it all in remembrance of him. So I ask you to rise, come forward now. The bread's in the center, the cups are all around the side, and I've got my helpers. You take care of this side of the room. You may take of the bread and the cup 
as you receive it rather than waiting for us all at the end. If you are seated and someone comes toward you and for whatever reason you do not want to take of the bread and the cup, just wave them off. That's okay. That's between you and God. If you've not yet taken of the bread and the cup here in just a moment, we'll, we'll take of it together. Well, you can understand that Jesus has us do this as a way of saying, I want you to come dine with me. Oh, eating together has always, in whatever time in history, has always been a, a symbol of, of unbridled friendship, of fellowship. And in this, Jesus says, let us come together. I love you, and I'm glad, so glad that you're in my home. I love you, and I'm so glad to part that you have partaken of my salvation. So if you've not yet taken it, the, the bread. The cup. For this bread and this cup and all that it signifies, we are thankful, O oh God. We give you praise, and we are filled with gratitude. Amen. Pastor.